0: Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the Bible Mean podcast by
1: Preset Ministries. We hope this podcast can bless you in your day-to-day life as you listen to a range of testimonies about God's faithfulness within the lives of so many. The views expressed in this podcast don't necessarily reflect that of Preset Ministries UK. But without further ado, here's the podcast.
0: Well, I'm excited to be welcoming the Reverend Michael Healy to the Bible and Me podcast today. Michael was born and grew up in Southern Ireland. He is the youngest of five children. He has a twin brother who's older by 20 minutes and I know that one of the things that he and his twin brother love to do is to watch Ireland beat England at rugby. Uh, Michael's married to Anne with whom he has been in Christian ministry for many many years. Uh, They met at Belfast Bible College and have pastored churches in Suffolk and also in Scotland. Uh, It's also of note that his grandparents were tragically killed in the first Japanese raid on Rangoon in Burma in 1942, and his parents were married there three weeks later, also in Burma. And Michael says that his mother spent her wedding day trying to stay alive in the trenches as she sought protection from the Japanese. Um, They have three sons. Kyle, David, and Jonathan, and 4.5 grandchildren, all boys. Uh, Michael loves reading, he loves preaching, uh, he loves rugby, and he loves walking. So, Michael, welcome to the programme.
1: Thank you, Nigel. (laughs) Uh,
0: So, Michael, um, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and and why do you follow him?
1: I was brought up in... home. My father was Irish Catholic, my mother was English and Anglican, and when I was about 12 I guess we had um, a rather nice Georgian country house and a few acres around about it which we didn't farm. My father rented it out and on one occasion the farmer who was using the land had some sheep and he asked me would I come and help him. He had a problem with a, with a ewe and he took me into an outhouse and the ewe was lying on a bed of straw carrying a lamb that was dead and we had to deliver the lamb from the ewe. And that was quite difficult involve, involving baling twine and, and a lesson in biology that was kind of new to me. And I just remember feeling a profound sense of sadness when I saw this little lamb dead, covered in afterbirth. And the farmer was sad too, because that was his livelihood. Having cleared up, we then went out into one of the fields to look at the rest of the flock. And we spotted amongst the sheep another ewe, and the head of her lamb was presented, but she didn't appear to be able to deliver the lamb. So very quickly we got the sheep, lay her down, and the farmer just delivered the lamb. And as I looked it looked to me that the lamb was dead. But he took some coarse grass and he cleared the nostrils. And then he opened its mouth and he blew into the mouth of the lamb, put the head down and then with a big gnarled finger began to rub the heart. And as I was looking at this thing, lying on the ground, all of a sudden it gulped and came alive. Hmm. And for the very first time... I became aware that there was something beyond my subjective reality. The way I process it now all these years later was that in those moments, God's invisible world touched my visible world, and i i it, it impacted me in an amazing way. Hmm. I knew that there was something more beyond my ken, and I needed at some stage to find out about it,
0: yeah yeah I'm, i no, I was going to say, was it at that point that you you, you became a follower of Jesus, or, or was that sometime later? Oh, it was a long time later.
1: I my mother packed my twin brother and I off to a boarding school at a Benedictine Abbey, and while I was there, um, one occasion I wasn't playing rugby one afternoon. My my father, I have, have to say, had Alzheimer's. I suppose I became aware of it when I was about ele- about eight, and at this stage I probably would have been fourteen, fifteen, and I guess I was the proverbial angry young man of course normality is what you experience, even the abnormal becomes normality and I didn't know what it was like not to have a father who wasn't unwell Mm. but one of the monks for all the right reasons wanted to play amateur psychologist and he got alongside and cornered me and began to speak to me about myself and about what was going on in my life, and I really didn't want to speak to him. I bitterly resented him because one of the things, one of the legacies of kind of dysfunctionalism is that you don't want to talk about it because to talk about it is to acknowledge the pain. Hmm. But I'd been brought up so I couldn't be rude to him. I had to wait until I could escape, and having escaped... I went up to the abbey and went into one of the side chapels and I just began to pray that somehow God would become real to me. Mm. I'm not really sure what I expected. A blinding flash of light, I really don't know. I do know that I wept like a baby. And then when nothing happened, I came to the conclusion that either God didn't exist or he did exist, but he didn't, didn't care. So I thought, well, that's it. And I left the church and physically, but I left the the church in every other way too. I set myself some goals in life, which I'm not going to tell you about because they were not very honourable. Um, but as far as I was concerned from that point on, God was just not on my radar at all. A number of years later when I... Uh, left school um, having gone through a whole variety of adventures a friend of mine called Johnny Slazinger whose family used to make tennis rackets and things I recognise that name (laughs) Johnny said Michael you need to become a Christian and I said what do you mean become a Christian I am a Christian I was born in Ireland (laughs) I use a knife and fork to eat my peas Uh, and he said no I mean a real Christian so I didn't know what he meant by a real Christian so he popped me into his car and he drove me off into the countryside and introduced me to a lovely couple and he left me there, so I was a captive audience. And they, he said to them, tell Mike about becoming a Christian. So they did. They very graciously told me that in God's eyes I was a sinner. And I got a little bit peeved about that. After all, who were they to tell me that I was a sinner? And they gave me a Bible. I'd never had a Bible before. I'd had a New Testament, which I'd never read, never been encouraged to read. But I began to read it to see if there was something I could find that disagreed with whatever they were telling me. And I, I couldn't understand it. It was like reading the telephone directory. <laughs> and um, I have to confess that I was a bit naughty in that I would turn up at mealtimes just to see if they were as warm and welcoming at inconvenient times as they were at other times. I even went so far as to ring them up with a, quest- with a question at midnight one night. But they were just lovely and caring and kind. And one of the things I say to folks today is that if you are trying to win people, think about the qualities in the lives of the folks that God used to impact you and pray that those qualities might be made evident by the Holy Spirit. Mm. In any event, I went to a number of meetings with them. And at one meeting in a little brethren assembly, there was an elderly gentleman and For all the right reasons, he wanted to press home the gospel as he wagged uh, his finger that looked to be a foot long underneath my (laughs) left nostril, and I thought my brain was in danger. And he said, you need to give your life to Christ. So I thought, well, this is pressure, and I don't need pressure. So I walked out, and I left. I then went off, did some various adventures, British Army and Royal Hong Kong Police, and I came back. And uh, my life seemed to be going down the tubes. I was, I guess, just just about 22. Some of my friends were graduating from university, some were getting married, some were buying property. And I was working in this warehouse for a minuscule amount of money. And life was awful. Mm. I was jumping into the jungle on a Monday morning going round as though I was on a carousel and getting off on Friday just exactly the same spot as I got on. A lot of movement, but no progress. And I clutched my eight pounds, which was my salary or wage, and went home via the public house and drank the lot. I was living at home, so my mother, uh, very concerned as she was, looked after me. And I came to the point of thinking, well, if this is all that life has to offer, Mm. it's not really very appealing. Mm. I used to do a bit of shooting, so I had a couple of shotguns, and I thought, well, you know, it would be easy to end all of this. But being half sensible, I thought, well, I need to be sure that there are no consequences. So I thought, I'd better pray. I'd never lost touch with those Christian folks. and They had a little boy who was six at the time, and he prayed for me every night. His name was Peter. And for a number of years he prayed for me. And then that night I was in bed, I had a pain in my stomach, and I thought, well, I need to be sure that there isn't a God. So I began to pray and said, God, if, if there is a God, and if you can do for me what I've been told you can do in terms of forgiving my sin, I want you to do that. Hmm. Um, and then I went to sleep, and I woke up the next morning, and I thought, well, I prayed last night, but i better pray again just in case God didn't hear. You see, I had no idea how acute God's hearing was. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it is funny. I began to pray, and I said, God, I'm so frightened that this isn't real. That I'm not going to tell anybody that I've prayed to you until somebody comes to me and says, Mike, you've changed. And two, three days later, my twin brother came and said, Mike, what's happened? You're different. You've changed. And I said, hallelujah. And he said, what? I said, hallelujah. Uh, And he said, well, what? And I said, Jesus is real. And he looked at him. He said, so what? Mm. And over the years, he has said several times, I wish I had a faith like yours. Mm. And my default response has been to say, God is very generous. Why don't you ask him for faith? Mm. Because he'll give you faith. Mm. And that was 44, I guess, years ago. Yeah. That's how I came to faith.
0: Well, 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 amazing. Now, in, um, in 1980, so, so, um, so you left school in 1969, and then over a period of 10 years, you, you were involved in a number of things, some of which you've just mentioned. Um, but in 1980, you went to Belfast
1: Bible College. How on earth did that come about? Well, that's interesting, too. As a young Christian, I I used to go to the morning service in the church, and I would park my MGB outside. Actually, I was an MGB GT, Just the GT is important. And <laughs> uh, I had a gun in the car and a dog in the car, and then I would, after the service, I'd go off shooting for the day. But then, very quickly, the Lord gave me a nudge and said, you know, I actually want more of you. So I began to go to the evening service, and then I got involved in teaching Sunday school, and then I got involved in an after-church youth fellowship, so Sunday became a very busy day. I went to visit the OM ship, the Logos, it was in Dublin, and uh, it was a youth leader's training day, because I was young all those years ago. And George Verwer and a guy called Frank Dietz were teaching this course, and I came off the ship thinking... Those guys are scarily committed. They eat rice and beans. Oh, I don't think I could live like that. I had no sleep on the Saturday night, Sunday morning. I was disturbed internally all day on Sunday. And on the Sunday night, I didn't sleep either. So I thought, I've got to somehow find out what's going on. So I'm going to go back to the ship. I got on the train to go into Dublin. And I got off the train at the River Liffey. And the O.M. ship was east, but my office was west. So I thought, well, this evening, I'll go down to the ship and I'll speak to George Verber or Frank Dietz. So as I walked along the quay, away from the ship, who did I meet walking down towards me but George Verber and Frank Dietz? So I rushed up and said, look, I need to speak to you. So they said, well, come down to the ship after your work and have some tea. So more rice and beans. So that evening, I went down to the ship, and Frank Dietz took me, uh, after the meal, into his cabin and said, how can I help you? Mm. And I just said, look, I'm, I don't know what's going on. I'm up and all distressed, and I can't sleep, and I don't know what's going on. And he then told me the story of the Kohinoor diamond. When the Maharaja of Kohenor, um, who he was a six-year-old boy, this diamond, which now forms part of the crown jewels, was discovered. The, Ma- the regent, uh, the Maharaja's uncle, uh, who ruled in his place, decided that it would be appropriate to give this to Queen Victoria because she was the Empress of India. And it was gifted and brought into the crown jewels. Well, when that little boy grew up to become a man and a Maharaja in his own right, he went to London and apparently called to see Queen Victoria and she offered him... Uh, hospitality and said, is there anything I can do for you? I was told that, uh, he said, I'd love to see the Kohenor diamond. So some little fellow tootled off to the tower and brought the Kohenor diamond back. and It was handed to this man and he said, when I was a child I gave you this. I had no understanding of its immense value, its extraordinary beauty and its rarity, but with a fuller understanding of its value, its exquisite beauty, and its extraordinary rarity, I want to give it to you again. And he said, Mike, maybe the Lord is saying to you, you've given your life to me, but do you really mean that? Are you really prepared? So I burst into tears, uh, and uh, I'm not only given to tears, but in spiritual moments, and I did. And I dropped to my knees and I said, Lord, mm. you helping me, I'll do whatever, mm. whenever and wherever. And at that time, I believed that God was calling me to go to Bible college. I don't know how I knew that, but that's what I felt. I um, applied to go to a mission called L'Ovi, um, Water of Life in France, with a man called Brian Tatford. And they came back. To me and said, "No." My spiritual father phoned me and said, um, "I'm sorry that there isn't a vacancy for you in in Low V." And I don't know how long it took me to process it, whether it was a couple of seconds or half a second. But I began to think, "Well, Lord, I've said I'll do whatever, whenever, wherever. And if you're telling me you don't want to go, that it's good for me to know that. So thank you, Lord. So what else?" What do you want me to do? I went into my place of work and I discovered that my employer who went to the church that I went to had heard that I was potentially going to leave. So he'd advertised for somebody else and he let me go on Christmas Eve. And that was a bit of a shock Mm. because it wasn't anticipated. Uh, And I was unemployed for a couple of months, which was actually a good thing because my mother... My dad was in a nursing home at that stage, and we were, had to pack up and move to a smaller house. And uh, I was able to help my mum, which was, which was pretty good. But then I was, I was invited to go for an interview with a man. I'd never met this man before. His name was Robin. And he interviewed me. He was the managing director. And the manager of the cork office also interviewed me. They were looking. They, they sold instrumentation. I knew nothing about instrumentation. And they said, why did you leave your last job? And I responded honestly by saying, well, I didn't leave. They let me go. And they said, well, okay, what are your plans for the future? And I said, well, I believe God is calling me to go off to study theology at, at the Bible college. And they looked at me and said, well, it's not, going, it's not doing you a lot of good. But I said, well, I'm only being honest. So then they handed me a, a, li- a leaflet. And they said, this leaflet... Um, represents a portion of one of the ranges of pumps that we that we sell. Would you like to comment on it? So I knew nothing about pumps. I mean, I know what a pump is, but I didn't know what a pump looked like. But I said, as I looked at this leaflet, if this represents a portion of one of the ranges of pumps that you do, and there's 24 pumps in this portion of the range, it must be a fairly comprehensive range. didn't know what else to say, but... That was a question they'd asked all the candidates, and I was the only one who gave them that answer. It happened to be the answer that they were looking for. Well, they phoned me up a day or so later and said, sorry, you didn't get the job advertised, but we've decided to make a job for you. So I went in on a Saturday morning to meet the managing director, and he talked about terms and conditions and what the job entailed, and he then said, are you going to take the job? And I said, well, I I believe that God wants me to do that, but is it okay if we start it right? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, can we pray together? And uh, he was a little taken aback, but said, okay. So I then prayed, just, Lord, help me to do this job in a way that will be honoring to you. And at the end of it, he said to me, well, I don't want you to be doing this all the time. But interestingly enough, we ended up by praying about the bad debts together. And uh, I, I was going to evening classes in the London Bible College. They had a branch in Dublin, and he ended up going, doing some study there as well. Mm. So that was great. Mm.
0: So you met Anne at uh, Belfast Bible College. Oh, didn't you? So,
1: oh sorry. Yeah. 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 I was wi- I worked with him for four years. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm going off track here, aren't I? I, I worked for him for four years, mm-hmm. and just towards the end of the four years, I was asked to preach in a church in a place called Greystones, and I went along and I preached on the Sunday morning, and there was a conference, a Bible convention, starting that evening,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and one of the fellows who'd been in the church that morning, came to me and said, Mike, I don't mean to be unkind, but I think you'd really benefit from b- some Bible college training. So I sat in the convention that evening, and I think there was a guy called David James Morse preaching. And all I could hear was, thump, thump, Bible college, thump, thump, Bible college. Though I don't believe he mentioned Bible college at all, but this was going on inside of me. So I actually applied to London Bible College and to Belfast Bible College. London Bible College came back and said, uh, wait for 12 months. But I was at that stage, about 29, so Belfast Bible College... um, called me for interview, so I handed my notice in, and then I drove up to Northern Ireland, and it was during the time of the troubles. so I was convinced that behind every second tree was either a terrorist or a, or a soldier, and I remember driving through that a rather dark, forested kind of to across the border, thinking, this is scary. I got to the Bible college, and they interviewed me, and one of the things they said was, well, now that you're a Protestant, but I was wasn't brought up as a as a Protestant I was brought up as a Catholic and when I became a Christian darling Mum asked me said it was appropriate for me to move out um, she, she said that several times so uh, she didn't enforce it but I didn't know there were such things as Protestant Christians I, I really genuinely didn't so I when they said this to me, I responded by saying that I'm not a Protestant, thanks very much. I am in the Old English sense of the word, in that I protest Christ strongly. But I'm a Bible-believing Christian. You see, in Ireland, North and South, there were kind of political connotations attached to religion. So if you want to become an evangelical, you have to join the Unionist Party. But that's adding to the Gospel, and what allowed to add to the Gospel. So I thought, well, that's great. They'll never take me after that, because having prayed all the way up, Lord, please don't let there be a place for me, which was kind of bizarre seeing as I'd handed my notice in. They then told me I'd got the last place. They had so many applicants, they'd had to draw a line through the list, and they drew it under my name. And I got, as I say, the last place, and they didn't have room for me in the college, so I spent my first year living at the YWCA, not the YMCA, the YWCA (laughs) in Belfast, which was quite fun. Mm. Now,
0: you met Anne at Belfast Bible College, and you were married in 1982. Uh, I understand that in your second year of the college, you were on a mission trip to Nigeria, and you had to preach at 32 meetings in 35 days. Um, What are your memories of this?
1: Well, it was a wonderful time. Anne had gone out to to Ghana the previous year with S.I.M. And I wanted to go to Ghana uh, for my overseas trip, but they wouldn't take me in Ghana. And I didn't understand why, because we thought that maybe God would have us to serve him overseas somewhere. And when I was flying out to Nigeria... Uh, a fellow called Flight Lieutenant Jerry Rawlings had one of his annual coups in Ghana and the place was shut down so I couldn't have got in. The whole purpose of the trip was to give us an opportunity of dipping our toe into some kind of mission water to see how we could cope with the temperature. The idea wasn't that you did a lot of work, but that you got alongside somebody who was working so that you could observe and learn. But they didn't have a missionary for me to work alongside. So they just sent me to a place called Bouchie, which is about 80 miles east of Joss, and they said, preach. So I had all these meetings, which was wonderful. Um, There were some just wonderful people. The first Sunday morning I I preached, they came to me after and said, don't preach for half an hour, preach for an hour, which was kind of music uh, (laughs) to these. But but I I had done a little bit of preaching, but I'd not done an awful lot of preaching. So I I really had to... um, I really needed the Lord and was more aware of my need of him than I perhaps was on other days. But mm. it was great. I met some beautiful people. Mm. and It was a highlight of my life. And I had an invitation from the Equa Church, the Evangelical Church of West Africa, to go back. Mm. So Anne and I thought, well, it mustn't be Ghana. Maybe the Lord wants us in Nigeria. And we got excited. Mm. Then we got married in order to have a year in our own culture before going, and we said to our wedding guests, please don't buy us anything that we can't take to the mission field with
0: us. Mm, goodness me. Now, you, uh, after leaving Bible College, uh, later on you became a pastor in Suffolk for eight years, and then you became a pastor at Findlay Memorial Church in Glasgow. Uh, looking back at your time at Findlay, how, how would you characterise your time there and what and what God was doing Um How how the Lord was blessing the church during your time there?
1: Well, it was really interesting. Uh, We in Suffolk, we were in a beautiful location. the The chapel was down the bottom of a a lane that were lots of daffodils in the spring. It was a very pretty place. And while I was there, I had this invitation to come up to preach in this place in Glasgow. I want to say that we, my wife and I had taken our kids out of school and we somehow just knew that we would only have the kids at that school for another year and then that we would be moving. But again, don't ask me to say how. I don't know how, but that was our conviction. We came back from our summer holidays and in the space of, four, of three days we had an approach from four different churches, so we felt that we needed to deal with them in the Way in in the order that we received them, and the second of the churches was the church in Glasgow. So I flew up, um, I went to the church, and it was a big old barn of a place. Um, really, it seated eight or nine hundred, and and I I preached. It was interesting. I didn't feel anything particular, and I flew back down, and I met Anne at her. Uh, the airport, uh, and a pastor friend, he and I were going straight off to a conference. So uh, when we got to the conference, um, somebody said, Oh, I hear you've been preaching and mentioning the church. And I said, Yes. And he looked down his ecclesiastical nose at me and said, that That's just a big mission hall. I think he was being a little bit um, disparaging, but that resonated with me. And I thought, Lord, I want to be in a mission hall. I want to be in a place where I get to preach the gospel to people who don't know it. Because I'd, I'd love to see folks come to faith. It was a very settled congregation in Suffolk. We had mostly the same folks every Sunday. We didn't see very many folks come to faith. But when we got to Glasgow, it was, as I say, mainly older folks. And I think there was one other family in the church besides our own kids and after our first summer holidays we came back and we said Lord have you asked us are you asking us to close the church because nothing will happen unless you do something and I remember it was quite amusing on a Sunday morning there was a first Sunday back uh, one of the stewards came and said, pastor there's a lady to see you So I went out, and this lady with three and a half children, and she was very thin. I didn't know, but she'd been thrown out of council housing for for drug dealing. But she looked at me and she said, Is this the born again church? And I said, Well, yes, we we are born again, and we try to teach the Bible. And she said, Well, me and my man want to be part of this born again, link with a born again church. So I went around to see them in the following few days, and I, I was met by her husband. And he said, sit. So I sat on the sofa. Unknown unknown to me was that underneath the cushion there was nothing. So my bottom hit the floor and my knees hit my chin. And I was in the jaws of this man-eating sofa when this guy looked at me. And he said, I've read the booklet that you gave my wife and I've prayed the prayer. What do I do now? and I I, I she, his wife was in the kitchen she was killing herself laughing I, and I was trying to escape from this sofa but he, he had asked Christ to save mm. him and I think two, three months later his wife did the same thing mm. which was just wonderful and that was a start for us mm. then we began to get into the universities and university students began to come and the Lord seemed to bring some blessing and some folks graduated and they, they, they some of them got jobs in the city and stayed with us and I think one year I had 17 weddings which is quite a lot and about three, four years later we had 27 babies in creche I think <laughs> and um, the bulk of the membership of the church then was under 40 of course. and we, we worked very hard at a number of things at teaching the church family so we do care for each other journey together and that we were to serve God and that the consumer mentality didn't really have a place in church so it wasn't appropriate to come, sip the sermon and go home complaining that you didn't get a soft-scented Evangelic chocolate dropped in your mouth um, but you were given something to chew and so we had quite a number of ministries and I think at one stage we had about a 67% involvement Mm. of Across the congregation in various ministries. Mm,
0: amazing, absolutely amazing. Now, now we know, you know, we all go through challenges in life. Um, can you recall any any challenges? Uh, and where where was where would you see God have been during those times? And what has He taught you through them?
1: Yes, we have had challenges, um, church is messy because it's got people. If it weren't for the people, it would be easy. They do say, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll only spoil it. And that's true. And we went through a couple of years when we knew some very real difficulties. And it was quite extraordinary because God was silent through those years as we talked to him about those difficulties. He was absolutely silent, and we were puzzled by that. And yet, as we have processed it, Helen Roosevelt talks about the mountaintop experience. She was the missionary in the Congo. And yet, if you, it's nice on the top of a mountain, there's probably a great few, but the only way you can go is down. And if you think about it, there's never very much growing on top of a mountain. All the growth is in the valley. And Hebrews says we run the race that's marked out for us. And that race that's marked out for us sometimes goes uphill and sometimes it goes downhill and sometimes it goes through dark places. And it's in the dark places that we learn the most. And I guess as we look back, we are so grateful for what the Lord taught us because we could never have learned these lessons without going through the experience. If I was to ask you the question, who oversaw the crucifixion? You might say Pontius Pilate, you might say Herod or the chief priests, but actually it was God the Father. And we know that Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, because he prayed in the garden, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And then he went and he prayed twice, if it's not your will, let your will be done. He, He surrendered. Now for us, our crucifixion, comes before our Gethsemane. And when we're sitting in in our Gethsemanes, in our garden of tears, we can say, Lord, this is unfair. This is awful. This should never have happened. Why did you allow it? And we can live our entire lives there. Or we can say, Lord, as you oversaw the crucifixion of my Saviour, your Son, so in a way that I perhaps don't understand, you have overseen my crucifixion. It's not actually been that bad, really. So, Lord, help me not to focus on the pain or the memories of pain or on the challenges that I went through, but help me to focus on the fact that for reasons that you know, you've allowed this. Mm. So I pray, Lord, that whatever changes you want to bring into my life through this, whether it's learning to understand in a more relevant way the suffering that Christ went through, which was far in excess of anything that we could ever go through, help me to learn those lessons. And um, it has been immensely profitable for us to have learned lessons that we could never have learned anywhere else. Mm. And if you think about it, Peter, Peter would never have learned that he could walk on the water if he'd not gotten out of the boat, the others didn't get out of the boat. But he walked on the water as long as his eyes were focused on Christ. Mm. As soon as he took his eyes off Christ, he began to sink Mm. and prayed, Help, Lord. And Jesus didn't say, Tread water, I'll be with you in (laughs) 10. Immediately he Mm. reached out his hand. So he learned a lesson out of the boat that he could never have learned sitting in the boat. Mm. And God, in changing us, brings us through these experiences that are often not comfortable Yeah. but you know something God's not overly concerned with our comfort but he is concerned with our characters
0: yeah goodness me well if you're listening there that would be it's challenging me <laughs> I'm sure it's challenging those of you who are listening as well now you've lived in Scotland for 25 years now um, how would you describe the spiritual
1: state in Scotland and why? I think the spiritual state is appalling. In 1980, the National Church had 1.3 million members. In 2011, I think, they were down to 350,000. Very sadly, many of the men in the Church of Scotland who know and love the Lord um, didn't feel free to speak out And defend truth. So truth has been diluted. And sometimes exchanged for tradition. And we have accepted stuff that we have no right to accept. Because if we're walking with Christ. Then his word is really important. And we have to engage with it. And we have to obey it. God hasn't given us the option of choosing eight of the ten commandments you know uh obey one and ignore the other no he's given us the 10 commandments and um we need to obey them but very sadly many folks have turned away and what passes for christianity isn't christianity and if you go to mark's gospel chapter 1 you'll see that jesus goes into the synagogue and one of the first things he does is he casts out a demon so the demons go to synagogues The demons also go to church. And voices that preach from pulpits that don't preach truth, where do those voices come from? That's a difficult thing to say. Mm. It's a difficult thing to hear. Mm. But if somebody's preaching error, um, it's it's a really scary thing. So, there has been uh, a real advance in a militant form of secularism. However, all is not lost. It may be that some of the mainline denominations are not doing very well, but God is at work. And there are folks coming to faith in him. And over the years, Scotland has been wonderfully blessed with revivals. And there are folks who are praying for an outpouring of the Spirit of God Mm -hmm. today. It is my belief that people need to meet Jesus to be changed. And where do they meet Jesus? It's in the Word, isn't it? Mm. So anything that we can do to help folks to meet Christ in the Word is a good thing. And for years I've said to my congregation, if all you get is what you get on a Sunday, you're on starvation rations. You need to develop a devotional life that feeds on the Word every day. That's the only way you're going to get to know Christ. And it's the only way you're going to really grow. Mm-hmm. And the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you know something? We'll never know how good unless we taste. But the wonderful thing is that the more we taste, the better we discover him to be. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a virtuous circle. Mm-hmm.
0: That is wonderful. Now, I know that uh, you love uh, teaching, you love teaching the Word, and I know that the Word is is really important to you. Um, And clearly, uh, for Precept, helping people read, understand, and live out God's Word is is our passion too. Um, How did you first come across uh, the ministry of Precept, and what value do you think Precept has to offer to uh, the churches and the Christians in Scotland
1: today? Well, they do say that behind every successful man there is a surprised (laughs) mother-in-law. That may be true, but behind every good man there's a better woman, and that's only true in my case. Anne was the one who came across precepts, went to a conference, met Kay Arthur, then went over to Belfast Bible College and had a light a light bulb moment. We were doing precept upon precept study on the life of Abraham. And as they were being led through, they came to the bit where it says, God said to Abraham, leave your your family and your home and go to the land that I will show you. So he set out with his nephew Lot and his father. And they wandered around for a number of years. And then his father died. And they wandered around for another few years. And then you'll remember that he and Lot separated because their flocks had grown so big that their shepherds were kind of having some argy-bargy. So the question was asked, so when did God show Abraham the land of promise? And Anne sat there thinking, well, when Lot had separated. And she said so. And then Bob Vereen was the trainer. He said, well, what's the significance of that? And Anne thought, well, what on earth is he talking about? (coughs) And Bob, very helpfully and very wisely, said, go back see what you've marked. So Anne went back. She was just one of a, quite a number of people at this training course. And then she it, the, the, the light bulb flashed. And She said, well, God said, leave your family and your, your relatives, your relatives mm. and go. Mm. But he hadn't. He brought them with him. And it was only when he left his relatives mm. that God showed him the land. Mm. So the whole issue of partial obedience exploded in Anne's mind. And uh, she was hooked from there on. I, um, one of the, the most treasured possessions she has is her precepts Bible that I bought her. Mm. And uh, she showed it to Kay. Mm. And Kay, very kindly, Kay Arthur signed it for her. Did she? Yes, yeah, she did.
0: Oh. Yeah. And, and do you think, so what is it, do you think, about what precept offers is helpful to people that you've seen of precept and what precept was
1: seeking to do? Well, one of the difficulties is that we live life at such a frenetic pace that um, we, we find it hard to slow down. Mm. I have a friend called Nigel who likes to drive quickly over sleeping policemen, <laughs> and the car kind of takes off. Well, we read the Bible like that. We speed skate across the surface. Can't
0: imagine which Nigel that would be. <laughs> <laughs>
1: there you go. Anyway, um, it's really a useful thing to slow
0: down oh by the way I've just got to interject for a second Michael Michael here talks about three sanctifications the sanctification of the heart the sanctification of the wallet and the sanctification of the right pedal
1: as you're driving <laughs> the right foot the right foot <laughs> so, yes. and as the right foot of a, of a man is the last part of him to be sanctified that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right that's what is sometimes <laughs> sorry said. I interrupted you yes yeah uh, where were we I'm now getting so old I forget
0: we, we live life at such a pace we live life at such a pace so, that's
1: right So the the thing is that if you speed read the scriptures, you kind of miss the jewels that are wedged between the lines. So it's a really good thing to stop and to slow down, so that you can actually begin to observe the detail. Uh, One of the things I liked, I've got to preach on this quite soon, uh, about, about the cross, and one of the things I love to do is try to say to folks, look, let's journey back. Let's just pause and uh, allow our eyes to linger, to drink in the detail, and to smell the smells and hear the sounds, to really go there so we can see. Because one of the key things is observation, observing the text. So getting folks to slow down is a really good thing, because you've got to observe before you can interpret. Mm. We had a training day in Finley, and we were doing, I think, precept upon precept, and one of my deacons came along, and uh, he got kind of annoyed that he had to kind of put these little marks and squiggles over the words. And he, he went home, and he, he wasn't going to come back for the second day. Ah, just, 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 I couldn't be bothered with it. It's just too f- fussy and footery. But the Holy Spirit seemed to grab hold of him and said to him, Are you not prepared to do whatever it takes to get as much as you can out of God's word? And that quarter sort of brought him up to a stop, and he began to say, well, Lord, I ought to be prepared to do whatever it takes. (laughs) And he came back the next day with a totally different attitude, and he used it all through his days until the Lord took him home. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And,
0: and. yeah, for those listening, you know, often we, we find folks that come along and they, and they, they do the training, and, and obviously I can't go into all that now, but, but there's a method to this and uh, which is so helpful. And a lot of people say, you know, I can't do this, I don't like the marking and the listing, whatever. But we would just encourage you, if you are that person, just to persevere, stick with it, because time and time again we've heard people's testimonies of sticking with it and then seeing, oh my goodness me, I now get it, I now understand why I'm doing this. And I'm getting to know Jesus better. So, Michael, um, coming into land in a a little while, um, what is your favourite Bible book or character and favourite Bible verse? Now, I know that's a tough question, being being a guy that's been preaching for years, but would you have one?
1: Before I get to that, can I just simply say, I was at Bible college 40 years ago or something. I just wish somebody had come and taught us the inductive study method. It would have been so helpful down through years of study. Mm. So that I say that by way of encouragement. If you want to be serious about God, it's a great way of doing it. Mm. My favorite Bible verse, do you know, it changes every week. <laughs> I just read earlier this week a wonderful verse in Proverbs that says, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Isn't that marvelous? Do mm. you want to lend to the Lord? be kind to the poor. Isn't that a great verse? Yeah, a wonderful verse. A favorite book? I love Philippians but I tend to love whatever book I'm going through <laughs> at the time. I even fell in love with, with Job which is kind of strange because it's all about suffering. Yeah. But There's a fantastic verse in Job 29 I think it's verse 4 you can check that out in your own time a wonderful verse. A little phrase there that doesn't appear anywhere else um, mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Well, well, you're encouraged to look that up. Um, what is the greatest number of people that you've ever preached to at once?
1: Nigel, you're a rascal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was once pre- I was invited to go preach at a conference in India. Okay. And uh, and the opening night, there was somewhere between twenty-seven and thirty thousand people.
0: 30,000 people? Yeah, yeah. You are kidding me, you must have been on a big stage. <laughs>
1: yes, I had said to the organisers, I'd love to bring my laptop and use PowerPoint, <laughs> but uh, they, they were looking at me puzzled, and, uh, and, and of course I didn't realise, no. but you need binoculars to yeah. see it from the back. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, looking ahead,
0: uh, if it was all up to you, what would you love to come about in Scotland? over the next number of years?
1: The ground is dry and what I would love and long for is the Holy Spirit would be poured out in revival blessing from John or right the way down to the border and that it would overflow and seep down south Mm. right down to the south coast Mm. it used to be that while this was never a truly Christian country in that Uh, not everybody was Christian but there were many folks who loved the Lord
0: Mm.
1: and uh, oh I would just love to see that again that men might again turn to God and worship Him and honour Him that the kingdom would be extended Mm. that God would be glorified and I have this little vision this picture in my mind of what it will be to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and to look into his face and to be enthralled by his beauty. I know that we're going to get a new body, and I'm going to get a new voice, and I'm excited about that, <laughs> and new songs to sing. But just imagine, there we are, standing and looking at his into his face, enthralled by his beauty, when all of a sudden you feel an elbow, if we have elbows, an elbow nudging you in your side, and you tear your eyes with difficulty away from the face of Christ. And there's this person beside you that you don't really recognise But they say to you, I just want to say thank you for sharing Christ with me. And I want to show you these folks that I brought with me. Mm. And oh, won't that be wonderful? Mm. In that day, to be able to rejoice in the presence of God at the effectiveness of the sacrifice of Christ. All these lives have come to know him and love him. Mm. Isn't that the desire of your heart? Because it sure is mine. Yeah.
0: Michael, um, thank you so much for being willing to share on the podcast today. And uh, may the Lord bless you in your continued speaking and preaching engagements. Uh, I know that happens not just in Scotland, but uh, in other places as well. And may many be brought into the kingdom as a result of your continued ministry. So thank you so much. My pleasure.
1: You've been listening to Series 6 of the Bible Me podcast by Precept Ministries. If you enjoyed what you heard, we would love it if you could leave a rating or review. For more information on the inductive study method, or any of our online resources or downloads, please visit www.precept.org.uk. But until next time, thank you for listening.